No more need to beware the Ides of March, because today is the rundown for Wednesday, March the 16th, 2022. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and happy National Everything You Do is Right Day to everybody out there who thinks that they might be doing something wrong. Don't worry about it today. You've got this. We have a great lineup of news stories that we're going to be bringing your way, and joining me is Mr. Wright, Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm going to call this National Dunning-Kruger Day. Uh, if you think everything you do is right. Well, there you go. Um, and if you don't know what that is, definitely Google it. But do that after the rundown, because we've got some things that we definitely want uh, to make you aware of. Uh, starting off with one of those interesting stories that has a question mark at the end of the title. Um, an interesting story appeared in Forbes a couple of weeks ago that has some people asking about the future for Intel's Optane. The story discusses the various moves that Intel has made around some of their, you know, assets, including offloading their NAND storage business to SK Hynix, as well as the announcement from Micron about a year ago that they will no longer be developing the 3D crosspoint technology. Now, if you couple that with all of the moves that Intel has been making, such as ending the Optane-only SSD for customers, and that they haven't really announced any new Optane things in the last year or so, it has a lot of people asking some questions about what the future of this technology holds. Now, Stephen, do you have any insight into what's going on here that you can give to our viewers out there? Well, first of all, uh, of course, no one has insider information on this because Intel doesn't share that stuff. And that's kind of the problem. Um, think about it. Uh, you know, it, couldn't this same uh, story have been written about pretty much any of Intel's products? Is Xeon dead? Um, you know, that would have been a good story before they introduced the third generation processors, right? Um, you know, it, that's that's kind of how Intel is. They don't talk about stuff that's not released yet because, you know, public company and all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, maybe they sometimes do. So here at uh, the Storage Field Day event that we held last week, uh, we were graced with the presence of Intel's Optane group. And guess what? Optane ain't dead. In fact, uh, at that story, uh, at that event, uh, Intel made a little bit of a, a waves by talking about a little about the futures. Now, like I said, this is Intel we're talking about. They cannot reveal unannounced products. They cannot it's that's their public company and their Intel, and they're not going to do it. But, but that being said, uh, it sure sounds like we're going to see a third generation of Optane and Optane on CXL soon, because those are some of the things that were listed on their slides uh, at the event. In other words, they were showing uh, basically the future roadmap for Optane. So I don't blame uh, my good friend, uh, Tom Coughlin, who I very much respect for writing this article. Uh, he's not wrong that Intel has been pretty quiet about Optane and the spinoff of the storage group and the uh, fact that uh, Micron pulled out and the fact that uh, our good friend, Pat Gelsinger, did say something, something, memory is bad, uh, maybe made people think that Intel was pulling out. But um Storage Field Day really put the nail in that coffin. They're not pulling out. And in fact, uh, Intel's coming back for another Optane presentation at our next event. So keep an eye on that. And um, Optane's not dead. Tom, uh, speaking of dead, there's no kill quite like overkill. Akamai recently noticed a new amplified DDoS attack that was able to achieve a, ra a ratio of 4.3 billion to one. That's right. 
This means for every packet that was generated by the affected systems, there were over 4 billion that were returned and directed against the target. Uh, the attack appears to be related to a vulnerability in the Mitel VoIP drivers. Uh, because this is a UDP service designed for stress testing, it can be made to send massive amounts of traffic. No word on a fix yet, but Akamai is keeping their eye on the active exploitation of this service. Tom, uh, what could come from this? A whole lot of pain if you're trying to figure out how to get these services kind of out of the limelight. I, I So this came from a report that was actually produced by Akamai and it was kind of released to some of the, the news outlets. We the, found this one on Bleeping Computer, which is the, the link we share. Um, it's kind of interesting. First of all, um, UDP is nasty because it does not wait for an answer before it just starts flooding packets. I mean, it's like um, when your kids try to tell you a story and you're not really paying attention and they're not really checking to make sure you're actually paying attention either. And they just keep talking and talking and talking except eventually you're going to exhaust the amount of bandwidth for the incoming connection. And that's exactly what happened here. So there's a vulnerability in a Mitel VoIP driver. In and of itself, it probably wouldn't be too bad, except the vulnerability allows them to essentially take the stress testing packet generation part and force it onto other systems. And say it with me, this should never have been exposed to the internet. Surprise, surprise, about 2,600 servers were exposed to the internet. And that allowed them to generate 4.3 billion packets. That's a lot. Now, if anybody's going to know about this, it's going to be Akamai, because they're going to be able to see all of the, the, tra the traversal patterns and everything in the middle. So I think that there's probably a way that they can tune this to maybe have those DDoS scrubbing systems kind of drop all those packets, especially because they're UDP, um, they can nail them before they, they get to the destination. But the problem that I see going forward for this is that if these kinds of attacks keep escalating, I mean, it's like uh, Archimedes' death ray. Even if it doesn't work the way it's advertised, it's still going to be bad enough that it's going to put a lot of pain on whoever the target is enough to kind of make them have to rearrange and refigure how they're going to do everything. So I hope that we can kind of get a handle on this. And by the way, if you're running a Mitel system, just go check to make sure that nothing's exposed to the internet and definitely nothing should be sending UDP out unless it's like an actual phone call. All right, Stephen, uh, here's another story that we got from Intel and it kind of uh, talks a little bit more about some of their expansion plans because it looks like they're going to be moving into Germany to help um, continue their chip making expansion. Um, as reported in the New York Times, uh, Magdeburg is the site of their latest semiconductor factories. They're going to be building two of these plants on site, uh, valued at uh, about 17 billion euros. If you do the math, it's about $19 billion. But Intel's also said that if this is successful, that they're going to potentially build more factories there, which could increase that investment quite a bit. Now, you've probably seen that Intel was going to build a factory in Ohio. We've reported on that as well. And this is part of Intel's strategy, not only in the short term to alleviate the chip shortage that we're facing, but also to help grow the market share that Intel has of the chip market from where it's at right now, which is about 12%. They want to go all the way to 30. So they want to get more than double the amount of market share that they have for their chip manufacturing processes. Um, Steven, das ist gut, ja? Yeah, das ist gut. Uh, Intel, sehr gut. Um, so yes, we. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the... Uh, Germany Germans are looking forward to welcoming their friends from Intel. 
uh, they're welcoming so much that they're giving them a big tax break to come. And uh, so are our friends in Italy, in fact. Um, this is classic Pat Gelsinger move, and it's, uh, again, the speculation of what he did in Ohio as well, which is to figure out uh, which uh, local economies really want Intel there and get as big of a tax break as you possibly can to invest. Uh, that being said, um, this is great for Intel because effectively the company gets a subsidy to do what they do, which is make chips. Uh, and they're perfectly happy to take a subsidy in order to do their regular business. Intel is promising to invest uh, somewhere between 33 billion and maybe as much as 80 billion euros in, in Europe. And it's not just in Germany either. We're looking at Poland, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ireland, France, Spain, and Italy, as I mentioned. And um, all of these places might get uh, investment based on this. Uh, part of this, of course, is the fact that uh, Intel is uh, has recently acquired Tower Semi, which we covered recently on the rundown, and uh, that will uh, be connected with an, with their investi invest investments in Ireland and um, and in France. And so uh, we definitely would expect that this would be connected uh, there as well, and and thus connected to perhaps Intel's uh, private uh, fab capabilities. Hey, Tom, uh, NASA is a government agency, in case you uh, hadn't heard, and thus they're regularly audited for security. In the most recent audit this week, the agency received high marks for their handling of classified data uh, with combinations of insider threat rating and software designed to prevent leakage. However, uh, the auditing team found that the sensitive but unclassified data was a bigger risk to the organization. With the amount of incidents of improper use of IT systems going up, um, let's see, about 500% in three years. Tom, should we be concerned about the way that NASA is handling data? I'm not necessarily concerned about the way that NASA is handling data, because if you look at the report, it actually does give them really high marks for the fact that the classified data, the most important stuff, was handled really well. Like, you know, they, they've done a lot of investigative work about insider threats. They understand that it's not people that are going to be coming in from the outside. It's more likely that some person inside will either send the data inadvertently or potentially on purpose and, you know, and expose secrets. Like, you know, how much does that rocket cost or how do you make rocket fuel? Um, so I, I get that they're doing a great job. The problem is, um, it, and this is a common problem that we see across a lot of, of security um, threat assessment things, you can't protect everything. So if you are focusing on protecting the really confidential data that you don't want to get out, what do you do about the stuff that's maybe not as important, but you still are not really wanting to get out? And so there's actually a classification for this, you know, because we are all familiar with things like secret and top secret, and I can tell you, but I'd have to kill you secret. Um, but this is sensitive, but unclassified. So think about it like this. Sensitive, but unclassified is a thing you may not necessarily want to tell anybody, but you're not going to get in trouble if you accidentally do. And there's a lot of sensitive, but unclassified data inside of NASA. Think about all of the stuff that all the data that gets generated from these reports. You know, it could be something as simple as being able to find evidence of microbe fossils on Mars. It could be the fact that we're about to be invaded by aliens or that they built the pyramids. It's not secret. It's also not true. But those are the kinds of things that you have to worry about. And so what they're basically saying is, is that for all of the effort that we're putting in to kind of protect people from leaking the data that we don't definitely don't want them to leak, 
they're not really being as careful about the other data that maybe they just kind of don't care about. And, and it's kind of a problem of like, you, you just get blind to it after a while. It's like, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's sensitive. It's sensitive. It's sensitive. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? But it's one of the reasons why they teach in pretty much any security course that if you're going to classify data, you have to be very careful about the way that you classify it. And that's why we even have, you know, like compartmentalization and things like that. This is secret. And I can't even tell you that it's secret because you're not supposed to know that it exists. And this is a prime example of why you want to set up those classification levels. It's because for the stuff that's not necessarily secret, it's just sensitive. Eventually, people just don't care anymore. And that's kind of what they were talking about. On top of everything else, like there were a lot of people at NASA that were asking for elevated privileges to be able to look at certain data. And there was something like 12,000 privilege elevation requests in the last year. The problem is that eventually one of those is going to slip through that shouldn't. And people are going to be able to see things like secret alien invasion plans. And that's going to be a problem because maybe that person wasn't supposed to know that and that gives them the opportunity to leak it. So I hope that NASA can kind of get a handle on this. But I mean, in all honesty, when you look at the other report cards that that federal businesses and federal agencies have gotten over the last few years, they're not alone in this. So I think that they're doing the best job that they can. All right, Stephen, uh, we're all familiar with Ubuntu Linux and their uh, parent company, Canonical. Uh, you may have seen an article that they published this week about OpenStack. Now, if you're sitting here scratching your head trying to wonder why someone is talking about this supposedly dead technology, now you know why Canonical posted that article. Um, the company is still very excited about the prospect of OpenStack, even though pretty much every other proponent of the technology has abandoned it in favor of courting public clouds like AWS, Azure, and Google. Um, the new spin that we're starting to see that's referenced in this article is the idea of building a private cloud for data sovereignty issues where you can completely control your data. In fact, one of the quoted things in the article is, you are the Jeff Bezos of your own cloud. Mm, catchy, right? Um, Steven, I just I need to make sure though, because I'm about to reach into the archives, is it time to warm up our favorite Monty Python sketch for OpenStack? Well, you know, things don't really die, do they? I mean, they just keep going and going. Now, to, to be honest, uh, you know, if you actually read the article, um, you'll see that indeed OpenStack is still being deployed. Uh, it is one of those things where uh, it is, has a lot more success maybe than people think. And, and this is funny because, you know, we were very much involved when OpenStack was first announced. We went to the uh, OpenStack events and uh, watched all the, uh, really, the excitement over this technology. And then, and then what? Um, frankly, it, even at the time, it seemed like this thing was, uh, you know, the, the proverbial horse designed by a committee or a camel. And um, that's kind of what it looks like even today. But it's also matured today to the fact, uh, the point that uh, companies can actually use this technology, deploy it and kind of get what they want out of it. Um, and it, and it kind of works. And that's what we're seeing right now. So OpenStack is actually being deployed uh, quite rapidly. In fact, uh, you know the, the the numbers in this blog post show that OpenStack may indeed be the third most popular uh, cloud stack out there, uh, right after uh, ones that you might have heard of, a VMware vSphere and Microsoft Azure stack. And if that's true, well, I guess it's not dead. They also say that OpenStack OpenStack is one of the three biggest open source projects. I guess it depends on your definition of bigness. Um, it certainly is big in terms of the number of components and lines of code. Uh, it's, there's a lot there. 
But um, on the other hand, if you're involved in cloud and open source, you may have recognized the fact that Honestly, OpenStack, the work done for OpenStack, really did help in the development of cloud to the extent that a lot of Kubernetes and other, uh, you know, bare metal projects and so on, a lot of them wouldn't be what they are without the work that done by OpenStack and, and for OpenStack over the years. So basically, my opinion on this is no, OpenStack's not dead. OpenStack is far from dead. OpenStack's not going to die for a long, long time. It's, in fact, uh, just doing its thing without as much hype anymore. And here's a clue, folks. Five years from now, somebody's going to be posting a blog post saying, is Kubernetes dead? And the answer to that is going to be, no, no, not dead. Yes, and uh, as a reminder, you can always apply Betteridge's Law to any headline that ends in a question mark. The answer is almost always no. Um, we got one big story that we wanted to talk about kind of encompasses a little bit more of a, uh, a bigger picture of things. Um, so there was a new directive that was passed by the U.S. Congress this week, and it involves companies and security. Specifically, if you're a company that is critical to the national interest, you are now going to have new rules about whether or not you've been hacked or been affected by ransomware and the need to disclose it. Um, the move allows the federal government to step in to help companies that have been attacked, but may not have gone to the FBI or the feds for help. Now, the sectors that are included in this mandate include finance, transportation, and energy. You know, things that are kind of important to the operation of the country. The requirements state that the companies must disclose any substantial incidents within three days and any ransomware payments made within 24 hours. And the teeth in this is that it's now part of their SEC 8K filing requirements. The rules come on the heels of recently increased fears about uh, potential attacks or disruptions from nation states ahead of potential hostilities or instabilities in the global political climate. You know, we turned up the temperature in that pressure cooker. Um, Stephen... The real question that I have that I'd like to, to talk about with you is, should the feds be even stepping in here? I think they've got to. Uh, as we've talked about quite a lot in the rundown, and especially in recent episodes, uh, the recent activity uh, that we've seen in the cybersecurity space related to the invasion of Ukraine and the, uh, frankly, ongoing uh, global cyber conflicts has shown us that critical infrastructure is uh, perhaps not quite as vulnerable as we thought it was, but is certainly vulnerable. And uh, more to the point, there was a story recently about the fact that the US uh, sent a, a whole uh, a group of basically cyber commandos into, the, into Ukraine um, prior to the invasion in order to try to harden the critical infrastructure there because they were concerned about the potential for cyber activity and, and, and threats. I think that that's what's going on here. Effectively, we have seen over the years just how vulnerable our critical infrastructure is to hacks and disruption. And now we've seen that it is absolutely possible that that would be used in a time of military action or war, and that that can be a real critical threat to the, company, to the country. We've also seen, though, that it is possible to remediate this by basically getting in there and addressing any of these systems that may be vulnerable. But we can't do that if nobody's talking about it. 
And I think that what we've learned over years is that, frankly, people are embarrassed when they are uh, uh, hacked or you know suffer ransomware, and they don't want to talk about it. And I honestly, I think this is a good thing. I think that it's good to uh, force them. Now, they're not saying that they have to talk about it publicly, but force them to disclose to the authorities that uh, that these things are have been compromised. It's also, I think, a good thing for them to force uh, folks to disclose to the authorities when um, ransomware is paid, because that's another thing that the government has very little uh, visibility into and can cause issues down the road. So in summary, um, I would say that this is a good thing all around. I think that it's about time that uh, there was a law like this. And uh, frankly, it protects everyone. So I think you're right, ultimately, that this this is the way that things have to be, because this is no longer a bunch of kids in a hacking group. This is organized crime. I mean, one of the things we learned from the, the Conti dumps that we got right at the start of the Ukraine-Russia conflict uh, was that essentially the Conti crew treats this like a job, like they have time off requests and they have vacation time and you know they whine about the fact that there's no coverage and, and, and that kind of stuff. But more importantly... When you look at this at an elevated scale, this is no longer an issue of whether or not one organization can fight back. I mean, we've seen in recent weeks, even recent days, the fact that the Russians are trying to bring the U.S. to the bargaining table on some other issues by saying, hey, we still need to create this global cybersecurity task force because if we did, we could totally get rid of gangs like Revil that, that were causing all these problems, which... I thought you guys didn't have anything to do with Revil, and I thought you rolled them up. Hmm, makes me makes me ask some questions. But more importantly, I'm going to go back to last year. Or do you remember when Garmin got hacked? And that was the Lazarus Group. And Lazarus is on a Treasury watch list. You are not allowed to pay them at all. And Garmin had to get a special exception from the U.S. Department of the Treasury in order to be able to pay Lazarus to unlock their data and, and, and unlock all of their, their files, because it turns out when you are a large supplier of GPS receivers and you lock everything down, that, that creates problems. So I think that what is ultimately going to end up happening here is with these new mandated reporting guidelines for basically saying you have to tell us within 24 hours if you paid a ransom, I think what you're actually going to see is that a lot more companies are going to get put on that watch list, that it's going to be effectively illegal to pay them or more importantly if you are going to pay them you must do it with permission from the federal government and i think what you're going to start seeing then is it's going to be a lot harder to get money out of these companies because one of the things that we've seen in the last summer's attack on kaseya is that the fbi was on top of this from the get-go they had the company they had the the crew they had the keys to decrypt all of the information but they held on to it long enough to see if Revil would expose themselves enough to be able to roll up more of their operation. So I think what you're going to end up seeing is the FBI is going to get involved right away. You're going to get people that are going to be on top of this. Hopefully they can get the recovery stuff without any need to pay the ransom and what have you. But more importantly, if you dig into the report, you also see that it's not just that they have to report these substantial things within a certain amount of time. It's that if they are attacked a certain number of times for less severe things, but they eventually accrue to a certain point, they must disclose that on a 10K every year. And I think that that is a bigger issue that is going to shed light on how often this happens. 
because I truly believe that there are a lot of companies that are being hacked in minor ways that are just not disclosing it because it's small enough that it's not materially impactful to this company's bottom line. But like just like death by a thousand cuts, eventually it hits a point where it's just untenable to fix. And this is basically saying now you have to tell us when we cross that threshold so that we know that there's something that needs to happen and it has to be public. It has to be disclosed so that everybody knows what's going on. And while that does end up raising the security posture for everybody overall, and I think it's a better thing in general, it's going to create a lot of panic amongst people because they're going to immediately look at this news and go, people are getting hacked all the time. Yeah, people are getting hacked all the time right now. They're just not telling you about it. Well, Stephen, uh, that'll do it for the news this week, but we have a lot of exciting things that are coming up in the next few weeks that we wanted to make sure that you were aware of. The first of those is actually happening right now. We are doing a special exclusive event with our friends at Cisco. They're announcing some exciting new stuff. That'll be taking place March 16th and 17th. Next week is Security Field Day, an event that's near and dear to my heart. That will be March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. You can find out more information about that if you head over to techfieldday.com. What about you? What's coming up that you're excited about? Well, I'm excited about uh, NVIDIA's uh, GTC, uh, which is March 21 through 24. That's a a great uh, forum for AI and uh, GPU information. Uh, I'm also heading back to Las Vegas for the networking field experience at Aruba Atmosphere, which is March 28 through 31st. And finally, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got Tech Field Day coming up April 6th through 8th. And I'm announcing it right here, right now. Intel Optane Group is presenting. That is exciting news. And, you know, with all of the stuff that's going on in, in the IT space today, it sometimes can feel hard to keep up with all of the big announcements and all of the exciting things that are going on. The secret, of course, is to tune into the rundown every Wednesday, 1230 Eastern Time, where you can get information about all of the big breaking news stories about some of the things that may have slipped under the radar that you want to make sure you pay attention to and and more. And you can follow along on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash gestalt IT video. You can also follow along in a podcast format. If you prefer the audio version, you can look for the gestalt IT rundown in your favorite podcast application of choice. Um, we also ask that if you have any news stories that you'd like to uh, let us know about, just tweet at us. We're at Gestalt IT. Use the hashtag rundown, and we will definitely check those out and uh, let you know what we have to say. And uh, we look forward to the opportunity to bring you more great news stories next week. So for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, and our amazing community out there, have an excellent day, and we will see you soon.